I have mentioned on more than one occasion that one of the foundational characteristics of the Christian life is humility. Humility. And today I'd like for us to engage in a simple, hopefully clear, and completely biblical study of that very important foundational characteristic, humility. And I have not been holding this sermon at for some time waiting to preach it like the preacher who was said he said I have a wonderful sermon on humility but I'm waiting for a large crowd before I preach it to them <laughs> so I haven't been holding this sermon for a long time waiting for a large crowd we do have a good number here today though would you prefer to fight with God or have favor with God I think the answer to that question is obvious isn't it and simple who in his right mind would want to fight with God? And yet let me affirm very clearly that those who fail to demonstrate the spirit of humility about which we'll speak today are arraying themselves in battle against the God of heaven. No question about it. Against the God of this universe. And this is what James tells us. In James chapter 4 and verse 6 when he writes, But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it is this passage and the Old Testament verse to which it refers that will provide the foundation in our study today for one of the most important principles, as we've already said, that one could possibly contemplate in Christianity. Why is a study like this so important because humility is the very foundation of our relationship to God and I suggest to you that it's the foundation of our relationship to each other as well what is it that will keep White Oak where I believe very strongly White Oak is today and that is in peace and in harmony and in love for one another it will be the constant reminder to ourselves indeed that humility is the foundation of the Christian life. I love this statement. I don't know who made it. The true way to be humble is not to stoop until you are smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. And that really tells us that as we stand before the God of heaven, in other words, we are made to realize just how truly insignificant and small we are. And yet at the same time, the statement also reflects a biblical principle, that is that we should stand tall and confident in the right sense of the word as the pinnacle of God's creation. As those who've been created in his image, we are not lower animals. We are not graduate apes. We are created in the image of God with a spirit that will live for all eternity. And let us glorify the God who created us in his image. But as we do, let us recognize our deep and genuine insignificance when compared to his greatness. And let us manifest a genuine humility before him and before others as well. There's an illustration that I 
think is very good from the secular realm along these lines. For many years, Sir Walter Scott, we know that name very well, he was the leading literary figure in the British Empire. No one could write as well as he. And then the works of Lord Byron began to appear. And their greatness was immediately evident. And soon after that, an anonymous critic praised Byron's poems in a London newspaper. The critic declared that in the presence of these brilliant works of poetic genius, Scott could no longer be considered the leading poet of England. It was later discovered that the unnamed reviewer had been none other than Sir Walter Scott himself. I think that's a beautiful demonstration of the kind of attitude that we should have. And certainly those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ should have no trouble understanding how important that attitude is in our lives. Remember, Jesus began the constitution of Christianity, as it is so often called, the Sermon on the Mount, with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5 and verse 6 that a man who will not humble himself before God now will never know the exaltation promised to the lowly of heart in due time. Because Peter there in that passage says, humble yourselves in the sight of God and he will lift you up in due time. Some in the world have gotten the exaltation before the humility rather than the humility before the exaltation that will come from God. And so I want us to briefly examine humility this morning. Prize it as we should prize it. Possess it as we should possess it and demonstrate it in our lives continually that we might continue to have the peace and the love that we experience in this congregation this morning. From the Old Testament, as we look at it there first, the word often used to indicate humility in the Old Testament is found in Proverbs 3 and verse 34. And it's Proverbs 3.34 that is the passage to which uh, James alludes in the passage we've already looked at, and that is in James chapter 4 and verse 6. A little different wording in Proverbs 3.34, but this is the gist of it. There the writer says, Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. And that word we find used in Proverbs 3.34 comes from a word which is most often translated to afflict, to be afflicted, to mourn, or to be humble, poor, and lowly. And it's also a word that's used in reference to the great mediator of old with God's people Israel, Moses. Remember Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, Now the man Moses was very humble, as the New King James renders it, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. No greater compliment could have been given to the man of God and the mediator for the Israelites than to say that he was humble above all men who were upon the face of the earth. And you couldn't have had a better example of humility in that time than Moses. Remember Aaron and Miriam 
when they came on that same occasion in that context in which that statement is made about Moses and murmured against him. They supposedly were upset about the Ethiopian woman he had taken for, for wife, but they were also quite concerned about the fact that has God spoken only through you? Has he not only spoken through us as well? There was an attitude there that was demonstrating anything but an attitude of humility. And it's interesting that when they uttered that murmuring, when they made that murmuring, Numbers 12 verse 2 says, And the Lord heard it. And the Lord heard it. That's a sobering thought indeed. The Lord heard it. And it should remind us that, yes, the Lord does hear. The Lord hears all that we say and he sees all that we do. And as we read on in that 12th chapter of Numbers, we find Miriam being struck with leprosy by the Lord. And that was after verse 4, where after the Lord heard what he heard, as we're told in verse 2, verse 4, he says, Come out you there to the tabernacle of meeting. He called them out to the tabernacle. Can you imagine what might have been going on in their mind after the Lord had heard this and they knew what they had done and then they hear from the Lord, come on, all three of you come out to the tabernacle of meeting. They may have anticipated that it was not something pleasant that was coming. It was like when my mother at times would say, James Alva, you knew that when you got there, it might not be a pleasant experience. And I can remember on one occasion when I was about to get one of those unpleasant experiences, which I know I deserved, I'm sure I did, don't remember the circumstances, but I, knew I, I know I deserved it, I decided I was going to run. And we had a one-level house that was pretty long, and I had a pretty good head start to get through the living room and through some swinging bamboo doors that were pretty nice doors that were swinging doors. And when I took off for them, she said, don't run, it'll only make it worse. And when I hit those bamboo doors, they stuck and didn't open, and I went through them, and I knew at that moment it was going to be worse, a lot worse. You cannot run from God. You cannot hide from the God of heaven. But think with me about how Moses reacted on this occasion. How did Moses react? He said, please heal her, O God, after she had been struck with leprosy. Please heal her, O God, I pray. What a wonderful spirit of compassion. What a genuine demonstration of humility we see in this man, Moses. And as we look at him, he typified Christ, not only in his mediation between his people and his God, as Christ is our one mediator today. Moses was simply typical of that mediator as it pointed to Christ, but he also... He also typified him in his meekness and in his humility. Because you think about the greatest invitation that has ever been offered, and it was offered by the one who was truly the antitype of that which Moses was just a shadow. Our one mediator today issued that invitation when he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, as the New King James says, meek, as the King James says, and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. That's the greatest invitation that has ever been 
issued. And the words meek and lowly in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 are very closely related. W.E. Vines, uh, in his word uh, study, says that the word for meekness here is a temper of spirit in which we accept his, that is, God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. We accept God's dealings with us. We don't dispute. And Vines goes on to point out that the word for meekness is closely linked to the word most often used to indicate humility in the New Testament. And he says, it is only the humble heart which is also the meek and which as such does not fight against God and more or less struggle and contend with him. We don't fight against God and win. And that leads us to a discussion of this word humility and this characteristic humility in the New Testament. And the word there in the New Testament in Matthew eleven twenty nine, as well as in James 4, 6, the word for humility is found in both of those passages as mentioned earlier. And here's the passage again, James 4, 6. But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And those words there, the same word in both those passages indicates lowliness of mind. Not high-minded, in other words, but a lowliness of mind. Thayer, in his Greek lexicon, defines it as the having a humble opinion of oneself. A deep sense of one's moral littleness and modesty, humility, lowliness of mind. Yes, James 4 verse 6 is a sobering reminder of how God acts toward the proud. James says, God resists the proud. Literally, that indicates he sets himself in battle array against the proud. In other words, it's a military connotation. God is going to battle with the proud. You are setting yourself against God. He's setting himself against you. And as we ask at the outset, who wants to battle against God? You're fighting a losing battle. But there's no question about the fact that God hates haughtiness. Again, in the book of Proverbs, you remember those Six things that God hates, yea, seven which are an abomination to him. And among those seven things is what? A proud look. A proud look. The Bible from Old Testament to New is replete with warnings against pride and with admonitions to be genuinely humble. God hates haughtiness, but he hears the humble. And he extends to them grace or favor to enable them to overcome the temptations of this world. There's a song by Alton Howard, a hymn, Grace All-Sufficient, part of which says, Grace all-sufficient, what need I more? He has provided life evermore. All oh, the grace of God. We all need it. We must have it. Without it, we cannot be saved and yet he gives it to whom? To the humble. To the lowly of mind. You remember concerning grace that Paul made a plea three times with the Lord concerning his thorn in the flesh, whatever that thorn in the flesh was, and there's been speculation that it was his eyesight, but we have no way of ascertaining that for sure. But he pleaded with the Lord three times to remove that thorn in the flesh, and he was told what? My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And how did Paul react to that? 
He then declared, therefore, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. And Paul was a wonderful demonstration, was he not? Of humility, as was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's look at both for just a moment. When Paul was wrong in practice as a Pharisee, he was still pure in motive. And when he was confronted with that error by the Lord himself on the Damascus Road, he renounced that error humbly and hurriedly, didn't he? He didn't waste time in renouncing it. And he was humble enough to accept that change that he needed to make. And from that day forward, or those few days forward after he was converted, the great apostle then lived as a true servant in all humility. And how did he refer to himself in 1 Timothy 1.15? As the chief of sinners. Did he allow his reflection on his past to hinder his present service? No. But he never forgot that he had been the chief of sinners, called himself the chief of sinners, and was so thankful for the opportunity to turn from his error and to become a truly, genuinely humble servant of God. And that humble man never lost sight of that wonderful transformation he was privileged to make from guilt to gratitude which was made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Should we be any different as Christians today? Absolutely not. In Galatians 6 and verse 14 he wrote, But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. And you remember, as we're studying the book of Acts, that in rehearsing his work among the Ephesians in Acts 20, Paul reminded them that he had served the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials. Acts 20, verse 19. And that poignant parting scene between Paul and those Ephesian elders is a testimony to the love the brethren had for this man who was truly, as they knew him to be, a genuinely humble servant of God. And so Paul is a wonderful demonstration, is he not, that the key to genuine humility is a constant recognition of who we were, who we are now, and who made it all possible. And we must never lose sight of those three things. If we're faithful children of God, but what were we before we had the privilege of becoming faithful children of God? Who were we? Who are we now? And who made that change possible? Paul never lost sight of that, and he urged others to imitate him as he imitated Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. But as we bring to a close our thoughts, Jesus is the perfect example of humility, isn't he? He is the perfect example of humility. The great invitation that we've already noted from Matthew 11:28 through 30 describes the meek and lowly Jesus. The one who was willing to give up equality with God to save mankind from his sins when mankind was deeply steeped in those sins and undeserving of redemption. And yet he came to redeem us nonetheless. And Paul, again, who imitated Jesus, calls us to imitate Christ also. 
when he admonishes, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, verse 5. And in the familiar verses that follow, verses 6 through 8 of Philippians 2, Paul tells us in referring to the manner in which Jesus humbled himself for our benefit, he says this, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. What kind of death, Paul? Even the death of the cross. Even the death of the cross. There's the key to humility. Even the death of the cross. The key to humility is the humiliation of the cross. The humiliation he was willing to suffer. That's the key to humility. Recognizing that humiliation because... Recognition of that humiliation on the cross will do three things. It will draw us to the Savior. It will drain us of ourselves. And it will drive us to serve for the rest of our lives. It will draw us, John 12, 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And Galatians 2.20 tells us it will drain us of self and the selfishness in our lives. Because Paul on that occasion wrote, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. I live, yes, but... Not for self anymore. I've been drained of self because of the sacrifice of the humble Son of God. And what about being driven to serve thereafter? Philippians 3, 13 and 14 reminds us, Brethren, he says, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I haven't made it yet, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the mark for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm driven, I'm drawn, I'm drained, and I'm driven by Calvary. Staying in the shadow of the cross, staying in the shadow of the cross will keep self off the throne and keep the Savior on the throne of our hearts. The high and the mighty, God will bring down. But the humble and lowly will one day be crowned with glory, not gold or any such thing. For in the hearts of the humble, the Savior is King. Where is He in your heart this morning? Is He King or is self still reigning on the throne of your heart? If you're not a Christian this morning, then the answer is obvious. Self still reigns because you haven't dethroned self through obedience to the Savior. But you can this very hour by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who gave up equality with God and died to make possible your salvation and mine. Believe that I am He or die in your sins, he said, John 8:24. By repenting of your sins, as he said, I tell you, no, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, Luke 13, 3. We must repent, change our mind after our belief, 
leads us to do that, change our mind as to where we are and determined to be elsewhere, and that elsewhere is in Christ. But we're not there yet with repentance. There is the sweetening of our lips with the confession that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father in heaven, Jesus said, Matthew 10, 32. And we're still not there because the Lord made it abundantly clear. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Baptism, burial in water where the blood of Christ is applied to cleanse us from sin. And then and only then is the process of dethroning self and enthroning the Savior complete. And it's then that he will raise you to walk in newness of life, add you to his kingdom, the church, that you may then be driven, motivated by the sacrifice of the humble Savior to make possible your forgiveness. And you'll spend your life in gratitude for that forgiveness as Paul did and as he called upon us to do in imitation of him. If you haven't done that, self is still on the throne. And self is still on the throne of a wayward child of God who is here this morning. If you are here knowing that you have allowed self to become enthroned again where you once dethroned self and enthroned the Savior, but the influence of the world has changed that, then you need to come home in repentance. Confession of any sin that's public in nature that we may pray with you and for you to the God who assures you he will forgive. That once again, he may enjoy the place of prominence on the throne of your heart. And for all those who need no repentance because Jesus is still enthroned in your heart, may you continue to be the genuinely humble servants of God that you are and that contribute to the peace and harmony that we are blessed to enjoy here in this congregation and that you may continue to be the kind of influence that hopefully will attract others to become part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of peace, the kingdom of joy, the kingdom in which there is salvation and in which salvation can be found in no other. As we stand to sing, if you need to respond, would you come now?